Welcome to the Purpose at Work podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Jacobson. This episode is brought to you by Guided. They help you stop employee burnout and turnover by providing great coaching for all employees so you can get out of the weeds and focus on building great culture. The best talent values learning and growth over everything else. They don't want to be managed. They want to be guided to realize their potential. So if you're ready to evolve talent development, make sure to check out getguided.co. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Purpose at Work podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Jacobson. Today, I have Joan Burke, Chief People Officer at DocuSign, which you've probably heard of. They're number 17, best place to work, according to the new Glassdoor ratings. Congratulations, Joan. That's awesome. Joan leads the global human resources function. You've had pretty amazing, extensive experience leading different HR functions over over the course of your career. I'm excited to hear more about that. But welcome to the show, Joan. Thank you, Spencer. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, Joan, could you share a bit for those folks not familiar with DocuSign and and what it means to be a chief people officer? Could you share about what you know what DocuSign is doing and in your role there? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So, most people, I think, know DocuSign as an electronic signature company, which is really how we we made our name. We're a lot more than that, but. When people think about DocuSign and when you say you work for DocuSign, all of us get these stories from people who say to us, oh my God, I love DocuSign. It's because they used it to buy a home, to accept an offer, to lease a car. So we make life easier for people and we're there. There are some really fun and important times. So that's who we are. We've grown tremendously in the past 12 years. We're uh, over 3,000 employees now, but uh, in a snapshot, that's, that's who DocuSign is. And what, actually, what we like to say internally is that DocuSign's a technology company that even our millennials' grandparents you know, will know what they do or the company they work for. I love that. I love that. And Joan, you have been in HR and in various roles throughout your career. Is that right? Yes, I have. I've been in the HR field for... Over 40 years now, uh, started in financial services. I worked for John Hancock in Boston for 21 years, and then I moved to the Wild West here and kind of went right into, uh, at that time, technology companies. But I've been with a number of other different organizations since I've I've been in the the West Coast here. And I'll just very quickly say one of the one of the reasons why I've always been really interested in human resources is because I've always felt what we do is very transferable. You know, I've been in, as I said, financial services, I've been in publishing, I've been in healthcare, I've been in technology, and people are people. You know, they, you need to learn the industry, but uh, fundamentally what we're doing, you know, is pretty much the same across industries. So I know that DocuSign has a pretty well-awarded and well-known culture and, you know, we talked a lot about this when we were connecting before about, hey, there's always still things to work on. And... I know that you're really passionate about inclusion and, and authentic leadership and resilience. Um, so I'm excited to dive into those different areas and also hear how that shows up at, at DocuSign. Before we go there, Joan, I'd love to hear a bit about where you're from and, and what you were like growing up. Where did this whole caring about people thing so much start out for you? 
So I grew up in a small town north of Boston, although don't have much of a Boston accent, never did, people tell me. The third of four kids grew up in uh, what happened, what was an Irish Catholic family, which isn't so unusual if you're from the Boston area. And I think it maybe was sort of like my position in family, you know, that uh, kind of had me connect with people and sort of when you're the third of four and the third girl and the baby's a boy, you know, you got to find a way to uh, sort of, you know, make your way in a family like that. So I'm fortunate. I love my siblings. We have had a wonderful life together, but I think that would really, that really shaped it. The other thing about me is that I, it just so happened, I went to all girls schools my entire life and actually uh, parochial schools. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about me. The reason why, and this is really my dad, who was a very sensitive man and who kind of treated all of his children as, as very different, is that I was an exceptionally large child, very tall for my age. And I think he looked and he said, you know, I'm afraid she's going to get made fun of because she's so big. So they started me in school a year earlier. And in fact, couldn't get uh, the public schools wouldn't take me because I was too young. So that kind of sensitivity about people and differences and wanting to be empathetic was something I learned very, very early on from my dad. And one of the things that you called out was resilience as something that's important to you. I don't, not everybody calls that out when I'm, when I'm interviewing them or, or getting connected. What, what has made that such an important part of your life? Well, you know, I, I think it's a couple of things. I, I lost my dad when I was 14 years old. He passed away as a you know, young man. And, you know, I think you learn through that experience when you're young and your world changes that uh, at first you think it'll never be okay. And life will never go on. It'll never be the same. And then you learn from that, that actually it does go on and you do go on and there are happy times. And while it is an experience, I wish no 14-year-old ha- would have to go through. It was important, I think, in really forming me, who I am, and also, yeah, this notion of being resilient and being able to take chances and things like, you know, move cross-country in your mid-40s when you don't really have any sense of community, but just trust you're going to land on your feet. And having a lot of experiences like that teaches you that, yeah, it's all going to be okay. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty simple lesson and a lot of people say it everything's going to be okay. Pretty hard to remember. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of the times it feels even for myself I uh I forget that so yeah. often. Especially when you mentioned, you know, taking big risks and doing things that are maybe a bit scary but that being able to remember that lesson that hey, things are going to things are going to happen and then you're going to move on. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the more that that happens to you in life, you get to a point you say, okay, now I know really everything is going to be, I will land just fine. You know, one of the other things that we talked about before was inclusion in the workplace. And this is something that I've been talking about a lot more recently. And there's, I'd say every company is talking about it. Not so many companies are really getting into the uncomfortable that needs to really happen in order to make places feel genuinely feel inclusive. Can you talk about, you know, can you share about your, your passion there and some of what you think is important about creating an environment that feels inclusive? So um, thank you. Yeah. I love this topic because I tell people that, you know, it's, I've now admitted I've been in the human resource business for a long time and I was around when I, for the what I call diversity 1.0 movement, 
when companies were really embracing this need to have a more diverse workforce. And a lot of the big companies were really putting a big effort behind it and naming a chief diversity officer. And the thing that those companies, we all got wrong was the fact that we just thought it was about bringing in people who look different from others and underrepresented minorities and that it was all going to be fine and dandy. And it failed. It absolutely failed. And because we weren't even using the word inclusive at that time. So I would almost start with that first. I would almost say that if you don't have an inclusive environment, you're not going to be successful at bringing in bringing in a diverse workforce. It is really the foundation, in my opinion, that is going to allow people to thrive and grow. And But it what it's going to require is companies to really rethink a lot of their programs and policies that they have that they've had in place. Even things like you know working from home, things like flexibility in hours. A lot of the the workforce that we're trying to reach now, you know, particularly we are in the Bay Area and Seattle, which are very you know expensive places for people to live. So a lot of our employees have to live outside and have to have a terrible commute and terrible travel. And uh, right now in the Bay Area, you can't drop your kids off to school before 8.30 in the morning. So we have to make sure that if we're trying to bring in people from different cultures and from different parts, you know, geographically, that we are sensitive to what that means. So, and I think a lot of times companies don't think about how their policies and how they run their business is maybe stopping things from stopping an environment of inclusivity as opposed to just being sensitive to different people in the room also important, wanting to hear different points of view, wanting to make sure that in the meeting, you know, you're allowing everybody to speak. So it's a tough one, you know, and company, we're, all, we're all struggling with it and, and trying to get this right, Spencer, but we're still in our early days of it, I would say. It's a long journey. What have been a, an example of a, an inclusion or a diversity program that you've been a part of that you are really proud of? Well, you know, this goes a long way back to when before uh, domestic partners, before gay marriage, and I worked for a pretty conservative insurance company, John Hickok at the time, great company, but wasn't necessarily in the forefront on a lot of issues like this. And it was, you know, I would say, I look back at that experience and say, it was so clear to me that, you know, benefits for domestic partners was something that was really going to be important to the workforce. And I look back on that now, and it took a long time to get Hancock to a place where they were willing to sort of be a leader in that area. But that's one great example where we actually stood out and did things earlier than a lot of other, particularly other financial services companies. And the other thing was around working women and how we were going to create an environment where we made it easy for women to come back to work. We were one of the original companies that actually did a lot of work in, in on-site daycare and putting in place daycare so that women actually would come back to John Hancock and would come back to work and had a place to bring their kids and see them during lunch. We had a lot of what we call kids-to-go programs where if it was school vacation, people could bring their kids in, would have camp counselors to be there. So those were some programs that I look back on. It was a company with, of course, a lot more resources than a lot of tech companies have, but I'm real proud of that work that we did there. And was it was it Hancock, the company you were at when, I remember you told me a story of you getting some feedback about why you weren't being promoted. Yeah. Um, was it there that that happened? 
Yeah, it was. Uh, I'm happy to share the story if you think it's relevant. But yeah, Hancock was a place where I, I, I actually had been in a role. The person before me had been happened to be a male who had the job as as a VP. I, I was not. I was a senior director and was ever promoted to to the VP role. And I then decided to move on to another job at John Hancock. And sort of my last hurrah and that former role was was holding a meeting with all the executives. And one night of the last the last, I think the night before um, I was moving on, one of the executives said to me, do you know why you haven't been promoted? And I kind of went down the path that a lot of women do actually is sort of like rattling off all the things that I probably hadn't done well and that I should have done better. And that's when he said to me, no, he said, um, that's not it. He said, I don't care about your sexual orientation, but there are people here who do. And uh, when I tell that story, oftentimes people will say to me, were you mad? And I'm like, God, no, I was relieved. You know, I had this like, thank you for telling me. I, 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 it was that moment when I realized that it had absolutely nothing to do with my work and it had everything to do with other people's views that were their own views. And it, and it, wasn't, it wasn't me. So while that's not necessarily, uh, you know, something that Hancock did well in that moment, but that person gave me some really frank feedback, I guess, and it, it really helped me grow. And it really helped me in every future job to say, well, boy, that, I, that, that I'm just going to be as authentic as I can possibly as a person and, and be in places where I can bring my entire self. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine receiving that feedback from somebody. And I'm, I'm curious how how did you integrate that lesson? Like, what I mean, so I can imagine it being relieving, right? You're like, oh God, okay, well, it doesn't have anything to do with the work that I was doing, which yeah, obviously yeah. is important to you, and at the same time can be infuriating, or probably it sounds like infuriating to the people who you've told this story, at least. And I'm curious what that main takeaway was and how did you integrate that into future jobs that you took? So it was so freeing, Spencer, that it actually opened me up to being just a more direct, I would say, kind of honest about myself and how I kind of approached my roles going forward. And it removed a worry that I had, which was, Oh, you know, maybe if people have a problem with, with gay, you know, anybody from the LGBT community, I need, to, when you're hiding a part of yourself, it's, you just can't do your best work. And even though really, again, it had nothing to do with my work, which is why I've been promoted. But I just realized afterwards, I think I just was always better in environments after that because I was able to sort of let it go and really not worry about how I was being perceived. Mm. as either a straight person or a gay person, as a woman, as, you know, you just, it was super freeing. I mean, I won't, I, I won't kid you and say, I, you know, I made it forever after, you know, everything I did was hunky-dory and it was all perfect. I mean, you know, we still check ourselves as individuals and oftentimes wonder about how we're coming across and whether we're doing a good job. I mean, so I still had a, a lot of that, but, but it really did help me be different. So I'm, I'm really interested in this because I, I find it fascinating how people have breakthroughs. So one I hear is that, well, I can't control this thing, right? So this is something that I just can't control, totally out of my control. So that was freeing. And then the, also the other piece was no longer being actually the 
taking away, oh, it's not that my work isn't good enough. Okay, so my work's good enough. So I can also imagine that being freeing as well. Is that how, how you're integrating it? Is that it was, hey, well, this is just something I can't control, so I might as well be totally in the open about it and then my work, let my work speak for itself? That is exactly what it was like. That's exactly what it was like. And, you know, after Hancock, I was there for a couple more years and then I moved up to the Bay Area. And so... Uh, how did you, how did that, after 21 years in Boston, <laughs> which by, by the way, I'm from, I'm from Newton, Mass. I remember, you know, growing <laughs> up, the, what, the Hancock building is one of two yeah. in Boston that, it's the Hancock and the Prue, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> What was what catalyzed that? Twenty one years in Boston at an insurance company, yeah. and now you're in San Francisco at a you know high growth tech company. How, how oh, it it was uh, couldn't have been more different. So what the the reason for the move was? My partner lived out here. We had met at a at a program at Stanford, uh, an executive program, and after two years, got back and forth, you know, traveling between Boston and the Bay Area. It was like okay. Looks like this relationship is going to last. She is now my spouse. We've been together for 24 years. So, so somebody's got to move. And I was at that critical point in my career where I said, you know, if I don't leave John Hancock now, which is great. And listen, I, I, I'm not telling a tough story about Hancock. I love that company. They were doing a lot of really, really very progressive things. But you knew, you know, you were probably never going to leave it. So I thought, this is my opportunity to say, gee, I wonder if I can make it somewhere else. I wonder if I could take the skills and things I've learned in this company over those years and then do them somewhere else. I talk about HR being a field that the, the skills are so transferable to different industries. Can I do it? And so that was it. But, you know, I, I won't kid you. It was shocking, right? You leave 21 years of insert company. You leave an area of the country where you've lived for over 40 years a community of friends, and suddenly you're, you're in, in Bay Area in San Francisco. Uh, and it was crazy. It was really crazy. But the interesting thing now is, is that I now work just about a block away from the first company I ever worked for here in the Bay Area. They're not here anymore. But yeah, so that, that's how I ended up in, in San Francisco. And now actually I split my time between the Bay Area and the Northeast. So uh, I have best of both worlds. Nice. Yeah. Not a bad combination. So Jonah, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, so DocuSign has an amazing reputation and, you know, being the HR leader for a company like that, that's a lot of responsibility, a lot of opportunity. It sounds like Dan Springer is a very supportive CEO in terms of making DocuSign a great place to be as a human being. I'm curious about what are a couple of your main focus areas today and continuing to push the envelope for DocuSign as a great place to be? Yeah, thank you for that question. That's like my favorite question. There are, you know, a, a few areas where we are really, we're really focused. And one of the first ones is that, you know, we want DocuSign to be the place where people come and they're doing the work of their lives which is a little bit different from, you know, a best place to work. We love being the best place to work. And, you know, we, we think, you know, I don't know a company that doesn't want to be a best place to work. But in addition to that, we want it to be the place where you are doing the work of your life. And that is a deeply personal thing for people, right? So you got to look in and say, what is the work of my life? 
And we want people to be having conversations with their managers about what does it mean to do the work of your life? How can the company help you do the work of your life? But we just want this to be the place when, you know, I say to people when you're like, you know, sitting back years from now on the porch in retirement and you're kind of reflecting back on your career, you say, God, DocuSign, that was it. That was the company where I was doing it. So we think that's empowering to employees. We think that's empowering to managers. And I would go so far as to say, if an employee came to me and said, I'm not doing the work of my life here, Joan, and I don't see a way to do it here, then I would say, then let me see how I can help you do the work of your life somewhere else. Let me see what my network is, where I can open that door for you, because everybody deserves that opportunity in their lifetime to do the work of their life. So, so that's a statement that is sort of culturally what we are, what we are driving. And a great example where one of my employees who, who runs our philanthropy program and recently was working on a big sustainability effort uh, with Dan, who, who we launched it at Davos. And it was so exciting for her. It was, it was so interesting. And she turned to me at one point, she said, you know, John, she said, I am doing the work of my life. And I was like, oh my God, that was just like the greatest thing to hear. So there's that. And then the second thing that we're putting a lot of investment and an emphasis on is around developing great people managers. Mm. So besides the work of the life, the second statement that is kind of a true north for us, particularly on my talent development team, is to say, as we're saying, every employee deserves to work for a great manager and every manager deserves the time and resources to become great. So one of the things that I have always felt since I've been out here uh, in Silicon Valley area is that technology companies, for the most part, particularly ones that are growing quickly, are not known for great management talent. We're known for innovation. We're known for a lot of great things. But people managers are not, not quite so much. Because we grow so fast, we have a tendency of putting people into management jobs and kind of like throwing them at it. You're throwing them to the wolves and say, just figure it out without giving them the skills, the training to be, to be good at it. And we're doing that person a disservice and we're doing their team a disservice. So we are really putting a big emphasis around creating great people managers. So the experience our employees have is really meaningful because they've got a manager who knows how to coach, who knows how to give feedback, who knows how to use the language of development and can help people find opportunities to develop them so they are doing the work of their lives. And, you know, when we started with our, you know, our newest managers who, you know, who've been managing, but who have never had any experience and, you know, creating cohort programs that last for, you know, a six month period where there's touching points. Uh, the next phase of this is going to be taking all managers here at DocuSign and putting them through programs about what our expectation is about what it means to be great. So, so a lot of work to be done. You know, we've been on this journey for about a year, but I would say those are the two areas I think make us stand out as a company. When you think about we want, when you want to make this the work of somebody's life, by the way, one of the, I think one of the things I've, I've said over and over again for guided is uh, everybody deserves the opportunity to give their gifts and love what they do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And people go home and they treat their kids better. They treat their families better. It just has such a huge impact in every way. What does it take to create an environment where people are doing the work of their lives? So I, one of the things I heard is having great people managers who know how to facilitate people 
getting into those roles and getting clear yeah. on that work and developing people, what else does it take? So it's very much a culture of support throughout the organization, right? So it's the managers, as you said, who are clearing the path and clearing the, making some clear territory for people to be able to have those opportunities. You know, and it is also having a culture of feedback and openness, and I would also say transparency, because doing the work of your life, you know, we, it's pretty transparent. It's like, tell us, are you doing the work of your life? And so setting a, a tone inside the organization where people, that's a language people are using, where they're safe to say they're not doing the work of their lives, where they can be engaged in conversations with people to help figure out to do work of their lives. Some of the things that we're doing here in this organization, there's one of our employee resource groups, our women at DocuSign, that have this five cups of coffee program, right? So uh, I love it because instead of saying, you know, all right, we've got this mentorship program and everybody's got to find a mentor, instead, because frankly, I believe that the word mentor is more interesting as a verb than a noun. There's now one person who's going to be able to do it for you. But in this five cup of coffee program, mm. what we're saying to employees is, Go find five people, individual, different people who do something really well that you want to learn from them how to do it and ask them to have a cup of coffee with you to talk about that thing that they do well. You know, so it might be that I would say, you know, Spencer, I want to have a cup of coffee with you because I want to learn how you do such a great job at interviewing people. You've got such a great skill there. You know, there isn't anybody's company who wouldn't give somebody, you know, a half hour and a cup of coffee to be able to talk like that. Right. So again, it's a, it's a tone, it's, it's, it's using as many sort of transparent, open opportunities for people to come together as community, to encourage things without sounding overly burdensome. Because if you say to somebody, will you be my mentor? Boy, there's a lot that goes with that, right? Yeah. Um, and I might say, it isn't that I wouldn't love to, but oh my God, the time commitment, I, I'm not sure how to do it. And people, here's the thing I know, people love to help. If you ask somebody for help because there's something you do well, that's a huge compliment. And if you can put it into a bite-sized time where they can kind of, you know, do it for you, again, in 30, 45 minutes, it's, it's all good. So that's just, yeah. you know, another yeah. example of a DocuSign culture <laughs> and something that we're Hand, doing. Hancock too, maybe. But, I know. Yeah. No, you know, I'm, I'm leaning forward in my chair because I get so passionate about asking for help as when I'm, you know, let's say I'm just advising somebody or working with somebody or whatever the case may be. Sometimes my goal is just to teach this person that asking for help is a leadership quality that the best leaders are just really good at asking for help <laughs> in a lot in a lot of ways and that for people who want to grow in their careers i just say get really good at asking people for help you know get yeah. get good at compliment you know understand that it's a compliment or make sure that when you are asking for help find a way to compliment within that you know and i always use somebody like oprah as an example like Oprah is not doing a ton of the stuff herself, right? Oprah has an amazing team that just helps her over and over and over and over and over yeah. again. I would imagine, Joan, that you're not doing a whole ton <laughs> yourself, you know? Hardly, hardly, yes, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I, and I think as a leader, Spencer, 
What's really important is going to your team and even like maybe a few levels below your direct reports to say, give me your advice on this. I want to tell you about something I'm thinking through and I'd love to hear what you think about it. And encouraging people to sort of be open with, with leaders inside this organization is so important. The things I learned from the people who work for me is amazing. And I just, I love it. The other thing that's really important to me, and which this is another part of this company that we're really trying to make sure from a cultural perspective is that this is a place of open feedback. You know, this is a corny phrase. I've been using it for years. Not that it's anything new, but, you know, feedback is a gift. And without it, you know, we are really harming another person from being able to meet their potential. So I always tell people, think of feedback as a present, as something that's come to you with a bow wrapped on it. And get good at both asking for feedback and very importantly, thanking people and recognizing when you're getting feedback. You know, so somebody... And they may not say, hey, I've got a piece of feedback for you, Joe. But somebody might say, you know, uh, here's, let me tell you something I'm thinking. And they may be phrasing it in a way. And my job is to sort of say, okay, what are the nuggets that they're telling me here? Oh, that is really great feedback. And once we talk in cultures that say, thanks for your feedback, here's my feedback, we remove the barriers that make it scary. Yeah. I always try to remember when somebody's giving me feedback or I'm giving somebody, I think about how much easier it would be for them not to give me that feedback (laughs) you know just because it's i think of all the times where i think god it would just be a lot easier to ignore this thing that this person is doing that is you know kind of not working Um, yeah (laughs) versus and so that's number one you know it's it's so much easier not to give it and that's one of the reasons that so many companies have atrocious feedback cultures is because it's easier not to give it so feedback is a gift Feedback's also, I, I like to just call it, you know what feedback is? It's information. You can do with yeah. it what you can make it mean what you want. You can do with it what you want. It's a data point. And it doesn't mean anything. It literally doesn't mean anything other than a data point. And then you get to look for the gold in it. That's the other thing I try to I try to remember is even if somebody's giving me feedback that pisses me off. I, you know, and I'm, and maybe they, maybe they delivered it in a really accusatory way and they just, it was a shitty way of delivering the feedback. I try to remember, okay, what is the gold in this feedback? Right. Cause there's almost always 99.9% of the time there's truth in somebody's feedback, even if it sucks to hear. Yeah. I think that's, that's absolutely, that's a great point. You know, and, and I think you know, with that sort of cultural feedback, I mean, one of the reasons why I think DocuSign is such a great company is because we also believe very strongly in, in really in transparency, which, you know, and, and our CEO, Dan, really is a super transparent person. And there isn't an employee in this company who couldn't get a meeting with the CEO. You know, when he gets up and Dan is a uh, math major and he loves, you know, kind of report cards and so he does his, uh, he grades us, which at first, I think the first time it happened here at DocuSign, people were a little surprised. He had four things he was sort of grading the company on, financial results, employee success, innovation. And now it's like, oh my God, people just, just so totally gravitate to it. Every, or all hands meeting, which we do quarterly, it's like, you know, uh, how's Dan grading us? And he's a hard grader, but people really, really, really appreciate that. So, but it is, it is his transparency and openness as a leader, I think that makes it easier for the rest of us to be that way too. I have a question for you about 
culture as it relates to senior leadership. And, yeah. you know, I wonder, there's a question in here somewhere. I'm going to try to pull it out because I, I noticed that companies with great culture almost always have a CEO who exemplifies those behaviors. And a lot of companies where the culture is really challenged, often the CEO and the leadership team will be exemplifying other behaviors that maybe don't work so well. Is it possible to decouple those things? You know, is it possible to create a great culture if the CEO is just not focused on it at all and, and vice versa? All right, well, let me put it this way. I think it's possible to create a good culture if the CEO isn't focused on it as long as other senior leaders are. But I don't think it's possible to create a good culture if the CEO's behavior is an antithesis to what you're trying to do. So if they kind of, you know, sort of delegate it down to other people, a lot of passion, I think it can work. But if they're behaving in a way that is just like not at all in sync with what you're trying to accomplish, that it, it, it doesn't work. And it's, but I will tell you, the best example of it working well is when it is kind of coming from the top. You know, and I, you know, and I, ugh, over the years, I mean, I always hear people say, oh, the leaders have to do this, the leaders have to do that. I'm like, oh my God, the leaders have to do everything. Other people have to do things too. But it's just, I think it gets back to that word we talked about authentic. It is really authentic culture if in fact the leadership and in particular the CEO is behaving in a way that is what the culture is about. And I think it is what makes DocuSign a really fabulous place. You know, Dan Springer, we're the 17th ranked company on Glassdoor, and Dan was this number three ranked CEO on Glassdoor. I mean, that really says something about, you know, how he leads this organization and how people sort of, you know, see him. You know, we do engagement surveys twice a year, you know, pulse surveys, 15 questions, our last survey that we did just a month ago, we had almost 7,000 comments. Dan Springer read every one of those 7,000 comments. Every six, so did I. <laughs> no way the CEO was going to read them. I was going to read them. And what he will not say, I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast at some point because he'll be embarrassed to me to say this. I'm just going to say it. One of the open-ended questions is, what's the best thing about DocuSign? And mostly people would say their team, right? People love their team, love the team. I, the second most best thing about DocuSign, people literally named the CEO, named Dan Springer. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, you know what, Spencer, my last job, I left, I had retired, thought I was done, uh, was not planning on um, being here at DocuSign, and then kind of got re recruited by Dan. I had worked for him before, and I thought there's only this guy I would work for again, I would follow again, and DocuSign, a great company, great brand. So, you know, transparent, open, honest leaders that people that, that live the culture, people want to work for them. Mm. I want to get to people managers before we wrap up, but I'd also love to hear, Joan, for somebody interviewing for a head of HR role, doesn't matter the size of company, let's just say any size company, what should they look for? Uh, and obviously, this may depend on each individual HR leader and their own personality and whatnot. But what should they look for in a CEO to, if that HR leader, you know, is wanting to be empowered in their role? So, 
they need to look for somebody. First of all, they should look for somebody who they are in sync with, obviously, right? Um, right, right. Whose philosophy is similar. And one of the things I always tell people who are interviewing for chief people officer roles is, you know, or actually anybody in HR as I coach them in their careers, it's like, you know, have a point of view. Stand for something. Have a point of view about what you think good HR is and how you want to lead an HR function. And when you're interviewing with a company, not only don't be shy, be, be right out there with what your point of view is about what makes great HR and what you would want to do inside that organization to try to bring that out. If you are sitting across from the CEO who says, oh, I don't see it that way at all, that's like the perfect sign to just know that is not the right company for you. And it's not to say anybody's right or wrong. It's just has to, it's just, you've got to make sure that fundamentally you are in agreement about the direction that you want the company to go in. And I think so that's the most important thing. I think then the second thing is, you know, to, to, to understand how well you will feel supported by that individual in terms of being able to get things done. And, you know, being, being seen as a senior leader of the team. I think the great thing about people in human resources, I think our function is, has, has you know, elevated a lot over the years to going from just being administrative and operational. And let me say something to my operational friends in HR, extremely important part of the business. You know, if we don't operationally get things done right and well, we never get to the strategic issues. But, you know, we, you want to make sure that you're going to work for a company that is, that is in sync with that too and just doesn't sort of see it as, you know, administrative. One of the things you said that I wrote down was having a point of view. Yeah. And I would imagine, I mean, back me up, but when I'm recruiting people, when I'm hiring people for my team, one of the things I always look for is somebody who has a point of view. I don't want to have to give them my point of view on everything, yeah. right? And so, so not only obviously can it distinguish alignment, right, but it's also what leaders are looking for because I don't, I don't want to be involved in these decisions. I want it come with a Ray Dalio likes to say strong convictions loosely held. So have a, have a strong point of view and be willing to look at it differently as well. But is that something you look for as well for your team? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And, and I think you're right, Spencer, you know, I'm, one of the things I've picked up from people, not this is not somebody I know, but somebody I've, I've heard speak, and I am unfortunately blanking on his name. First name is Ken, sounds like Goldstein, but he's the man who was had the title of special master. He was the man who had a very difficult job of trying to decide, you know, after 9-11, how victims' families were going to be compensated after the, the bombing incident at the Boston Marathon, the same thing. And I remember listening to him being interviewed a number of different times. I was always so impressed with how he did his job. And like that, he had a mission and a direction and a point of view. And he respected other people's points of view. But at the end of the day, he was unapologetic about the way in which he approached things because he was, he was driving towards a goal, driving towards an objective. It kind of gets back to something, you know, I heard somebody say a long time ago, they said, you know, you know, mean what you say, say what you mean, don't say it mean. So uh, you're right. You want people who are going to drive an agenda forward, who are open-minded, but who are smart enough and strong enough in their point of view 
it's grounded in, you know, good experience and facts and discipline to just make things happen. Mm. So I know we only have a few minutes here, Joan. I'd love to touch on developing great people, managers for a couple minutes here. One of the things you mentioned was coaching. Another thing you mentioned was creating clear expectations. I'll posit something and then I'd love to hear, you know, basically maybe a couple of the keys that, that you've found to, to developing great people managers. One thing that I've seen can be challenging for people managers as you're trying to scale that skill is creating a one-size-fits-all model for leadership right? Where people say, Ooh, I don't necessarily resonate with that style yeah. per se. Yeah. I mean, because again, I mean, we, we have, I'm sure you have, a, you know, 20 different personality types at yeah. DocuSign. You've got, you know, the introverted analytical people manager is gonna resonate differently than the extroverted promoter, you know, personality type people manager. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then maybe a, a couple of one or two keys for how you guys have created this culture? Yeah, so really good point. I mean, people come in all flavors, right? And managers come in all flavors too. And it is, there isn't a personality type, in my opinion, that is more successful than another. I think there's certain fundamental things that regardless of whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you got to do as a people manager, you know, you've got to coach, you got to be frank, you know, you've got you've to set expectations. You've got to let people fail. You know, you've got to be able to make sure you don't like just save people and they don't learn from their experiences. Now, that said, that whole notion of one size does not fit one at all or does not fit, fit all. It, one size fits one. Right. And so, you know, just like takes all types to make the world go around. I have seen successful managers here at DocuSign who are wildly different in terms of their styles. You know, theirs can be sort of the outgoing, you know, let's every, get everybody to sort of do a relay race and, you know, build, build teams in a certain way that resonates really well, particularly, I would say, on the sales organization. And then, I, and then I've watched what I think of more sort of like quiet, thoughtful leadership that is exactly what certain people need. And, you know, you might tend to see that a little bit more on the technical side. So we're not trying to teach, as a matter of fact, I don't use personality tests. I don't, you know, I mean, I've been through them all my life. You know, I can, I've been through, you know, you know, you name it, Myers-Briggs. Right. I actually don't find them that interesting because they might tell you something about you, but they're not really telling you how to be a great manager. So it kind of gets back to not teaching people to be different from who they are, being authentic, but just some of those principles that regardless, you know, just matter. Now, I, I want to end. Uh, there was one thing that's really important that I want to get across, Spencer, and this is something that I've learned over the years. One of the things that I think is really important as a manager, regardless of early on, late on, whether you're whether you're a leader with a lot of people or you're you know you've got a small team that you're that you're managing, whether it's salespeople or, or whoever, is I try to teach people to and I advise them to try to be, learn to become an empathic person and an empathic leader and, you know, understand what is going on for individuals when they're sitting across from you, which can be really hard, particularly if somebody's mad and, you know, they're, they're angry at a situation and they're leaving, you know, the best thing we can do as leaders is to take our egos out of these things and show what I try to see is what is the most, what is my most generous response in this incident? How can my spirit be a generous spirit right now to be there for this person. 
so that they may not leave happy and I may not be able to solve their problems, but I know that I've kept, I've done my best here in treating that person just as a human being with a lot of emotions and, and you know what, who, who's at probably dealing with things in their lives that I have no idea about, no idea whatsoever. I look back and remember moments when I was most vulnerable and the people who showed me the most empathy, they're the ones that stand out. They're the ones that um, taught me the greatest lessons. Mm. Yeah. You're making me think that for all of the time and energy we invest in in training and people development programs and expectation setting and all of that, at the end of the day, people at companies, if they feel seen and understood, you know, if, if somebody just is being managed by someone and at the basics, I just feel like this person sees and understands me and appreciates the situation I'm in and sees my perspective. I sometimes think that a lot of my other complaints go away, you know, it's, it, or a lot of the other situations seem to take care of themselves that we spend a lot of time and energy symptomatically trying to fix or skill build the things other than what you just said, which is, you know, listening, being empathic, being, you know, somewhat courageous, right. Or generous in how we're being with people that report to us or whatever the situation may be. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So Joan, thank you so much for jumping on here. I feel like we just started to get somewhere with the people management stuff and I'm sure we could, you know, we could, we could do a follow up here, but uh, what's the best way for people to follow your work or get in touch? They should do it on LinkedIn. So uh, Joan Burke, Chief People Officer, DocuSign, that would be great. I appreciate that. We'll link that up in the show notes. All right, Joan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Spencer. Happy Friday. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, 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 oh,